0: Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
1: And I'm Lily Knapp. Since
0: 1967, Foxfire has been a storehouse of traditional Appalachian knowledge in ways that still help people today.
2: I used the plans out of a Foxfire on how to build a fireplace so it wouldn't smoke. And it built it and it doesn't smoke.
1: Part of Foxfire's heritage is recording the stories of Appalachian women and how stories shaped them. We swim every day in an ocean
3: of story and I'm always shocked when other people don't see them or think of them as
0: story. And Foxfire still continues to preserve music and history that's important
1: not to forget.
4: Can't keep the world from moving around, moving around.
1: Today on Inside Appalachia, we're talking about the past, present, and future of Foxfire.
0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams.
1: And I'm Lily Knepp. Today, we're talking about Foxfire, a North Georgia museum and oral history collection that's internationally known for its preservation of Appalachian skills and stories.
0: Maybe you know the books. The original print run from 1972 has a distinctive look. The muted colors and the simple text on the cover that tells you what's inside ghost stories, midwifing, banjos and dulcimers, seasonal wild plant foods. Foxfire books are found in homes across the region, including mine and these
2: folks. Jim and I both knew, you know, the history of it, and and we had a lot of them and thoroughly enjoyed them. And it wasn't like reading a novel. You know, it's not that kind of reading. This is more how-to or what was done or how it happened. When we built the log cabin and the fireplace, I used the plans out of a foxfire on how to build a fireplace so it wouldn't smoke, and it built it and it doesn't smoke. So, and I don't know how many volumes were, I'm going to say six or seven. I had all of them and had read all of them, some of them read two or three times. You need to get yours out and spend some time with them.
5: I first read Aunt Ari the Firefox book, when I was in high school. Someone gave it to me
3: as a graduation present and an early birthday present, and I was hooked. She just seemed to jump off the page. She was so lively and joyful and happy in her life and such a good example of being a Christian without any meanness to it whatsoever.
0: That was Nancy and Jim Bailey, recorded by their cousin and Folkways reporter Connie Bailey and another Folkways reporter, Wendy Welch talking about their memories of Foxfire.
1: But Foxfire's roots go deeper than the books. The project began in 1967 as a student-run magazine in North Georgia. It was a way for high school students to collect and share the wisdom and lore from their community members. They called it Foxfire after a bioluminescent fungus that grows in the region and glows in the dark.
0: Now, Foxfire is not just a book series and a magazine. It's a museum and an oral history archive. One of those oral histories is from 1975 and captures the kind of knowledge that Foxfire collected.
1: It's a recording of Emma Chastain. The teenage interviewers asked her about her life and when she decided to have children.
0: Chastain passed away in November. And her death underscores why it's so important to preserve these stories. Let's take a listen
6: interested in um, hearing like why you started your own business and how you got it together to do it and like when you decided you wanted to like run a beauty shop and um, what what you had to do in order to get it together. Mm -hmm. Can you go through that? Well uh, really the reason when I first got out of high school of course we got we were married and uh, right out out of high school yeah and uh, then I started to work at this little pants factory. And I worked out there for about three months. And I said, This is just not going to work. You know, this is just not my line. I'd come in in the afternoon, and it's a wonder that Tommy could even live with me. I was just hell. I mean, I was put in blood. (laughs) But to live with, really, because I I always felt bad and I was always tired. which, I know, I'm not saying I'm not tired now, but I knew that that wasn't, you know, at the end of the day, you know you put in a day's work, but I knew that that wasn't really what I was supposed to be doing. I could just tell, you know, I didn't enjoy my work, and I feel like you work, say you go to work at nine, and you get home at five or six, or maybe six thirty in the afternoon, you work the biggest portion of your life, really, and I feel like you've got to enjoy what you do, and, uh, after I after I worked at the Empire for that length of time, when I first got out of high school, I, I didn't think, you know, that I would go over to school and take anything at all. And really, uh, I just, after I'd worked at the Empire for a while, I decided then to send in my application to go to Clarksville and take this course. And I went, and uh, we didn't have any money. I'll just be frank with you: when we got married, we didn't have anything. We lived with Times Day and Mom in their basement. And oh, we just didn't have anything, you know. We, uh, we, of course, now, we knew that this land, will, that we could build a house here, and this land would be ours, you know. As far as we really had anything, we didn't. And the year that I went to school, I worked on Saturday at uh, Hazel's, Lopin Hazel's Beauty Shop, at town. I worked out there. Well, the year that I went to school, Tommy didn't even have a job. That was oh, a year no. that he could not even find a job. And if it hadn't been for his daddy, and Mama helping us, we'd never, really, we'd never made it. I'd never gotten to go to school if we couldn't have lived there. And what little bit I made on Saturday, that helped pay the bills. And maybe he'd pick up a job, part-time job here, year younger than that, you know. And that helped buy my gas and stuff to go to, back and forth to school. When, when you first decided, you know, that you'd had it with Empire and that you wanted to go to school and do this, Did you get a lot of talk from people like, oh, your places in the home, you shouldn't be doing this"? Well, no, really, I didn't because, now, mother and daddy, uh, they have always wanted their kids to do well, you know. And they've always said, Lord, honey, go ahead, you know, make a good living for yourself. They've always wanted us to do real well, uh, which they didn't push, they never did push us, they kind of let us, make up our own minds what we wanted to do when we were old enough, you know, to do so. Well, um, do you feel like you've had um, more opportunity to choose what you want to do than say your mother did? Yes, really, I do because now, back when mother was coming up, I mean, everybody, when they got married, they got married to have children. Yeah. I mean, really. And yeah. she had five children and they did, they got married to have children and nowadays, Well, Tommy and I have been married, well, six years, and we don't have any children, and it don't bother us that we don't have any children. Mm
2: -hmm.
6: It don't bother us in the least bit, and we have the right to say, well, if we don't want any kids, we don't never have to have any kids. I mean, unless it's just a slip-up, you know, more likely (laughs) it won't be.
0: That was Emma Chastain. It's recorded by Foxfire students in 1975.
1: Foxfire's executive director, Todd Faircloth, asked that this episode be in memory of Chastain. Todd writes, Emma Buchanan Chastain was the epitome of an Appalachian spirit and one of the early ladies of Foxfire. Her drive, tenacity, and sweet demeanor was that of a true Appalachian woman. She was always looking to help others and had a steadfast devotion to her family and her faith. She is greatly missed.
0: A longer version of Emma Chastain's interview was featured on season three of Foxfire's podcast, which is called It Still Lives. The episode is about Appalachian women and the often unexpected ways they contributed to the region.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the women in those older archival Foxfire interviews said that they didn't work, but so many were midwives, mothers, business owners, and just had such interesting stories to share.
0: And now... 21 women have been featured in a new Foxfire book titled The Foxfire Book of Appalachian Women.
1: It was edited by Cami Aarons, who was education director and curator at the Foxfire Museum.
0: I sat down with Aarons to talk about how she chose the women featured in the book. Cami, one of the things I love about this book is its attention to negative space. In the curation around these oral histories, there's a lot of attention paid to who's here and who's not here. And then even within interviews, you're paying attention not only to what's said, but to what's unsaid. And to me, as a reader, I find that really powerful. Why is that such an important part of curating oral histories like this?
7: That was an important thing that I was considering when writing the book, because oral history is inherently biased. I had someone recently ask me how you go do an oral history and leave your bias at home. And you don't, because we always come with our own experiences. And naturally, conversations are going to be influenced by what you're asking, but also by what you're not asking and by what people want to share and what people don't want to share. And even though these women in this book and in the Fox Art archives do often make themselves very vulnerable, there are experiences that they don't share. And it's also important to remember when dealing with the material from Foxfire, that the interviews were collected by students who didn't have a research agenda. So these are high school students who are going out to write magazine articles. And when you're going to an interview with that in mind, you're going with a very different set of questions than if someone who is a seasoned academic was going out to collect specific stories. So it was important to me to make sure that the reader understood the context with which these interviews were collected, and how they have been curated and interpreted over time. And also the demographics of the region have changed drastically. And, you know, I can't attest to the fact that we've all kept up with those changing demographics, but it's important to note that this book should serve as a beginning, as a foundation for starting conversations of your own. So it's not meant to be the only book of Appalachian women, but an inspiration for people to begin conversations in their own communities and to further deeper explore what Appalachia is.
0: Although you mentioned the books just a beginning, um, it does offer just an explosion of narrative and stories. I mean, I connect with these women as human beings who were, you know, galaxies of stories among themselves. And then, with their with their stories positioned next to one another, this sort of larger narrative emerges about change over time, and I don't know, I could rattle off any number of themes. Is that something you thought about as well as sort of the bigger story you're telling with these particular women's stories?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So this project came about just from my initial research of Foxfire. When I first came to work at the museum, my supervisor, Barry, told me to just read everything that I could. And as I was reading, you know, if you're familiar with Foxfire books, there are personal stories kind of sprinkled throughout these other articles on how to make log cabins, how to cook over an open fire. And each time I encountered these women's stories, I was just like stopped in my tracks because of how much they shared And as you mentioned, all of the themes that they pull out about change in Appalachia or experiences in Appalachia, and I just saw the need for them to be together to tell a larger story. And so when I was trying to put this book together, I spoke briefly with a researcher looking for some advice on how to organize it. And she said to let the women speak to each other. And as I started arranging these narratives next to each other, I could see that there were these conversations happening between the women's stories, and they were really fitting in as puzzle pieces to tell this, again, larger story of change over time in Appalachia.
0: I'd like to talk about a, a few of the women who are featured in the Foxfire book of Appalachian women. and Maybe we should start with the first one, uh, Margaret Burrell Norton. I've spoke earlier about reading Foxfire, growing up in the its role in my childhood. so I can't speak to whether I've run across um, Margaret Norton before many times or if she's just so reminiscent of Mountain women that I've known, but she feels very familiar to me. Can you tell us a little more about her?
7: Absolutely and I'm sure you've read an article by her. She was in so many articles. Um, both in the Foxfire magazine and Foxfire books, most notably the Planting by the Signs article. Margaret contributed a lot to that article, and that was in the first Foxfire book. But Margaret is probably really typical of what people think of a mountain woman. And she was born and raised on Betty's Creek, and she talks about how she basically just moved up the road when she got married. So she never really lived anywhere else her entire life. And she, like a lot of people in Appalachia, traced her ancestry back through the land for hundreds of years. And she was a practicer of a lot of folk traditions and folk knowledge. And she tried to share that with the Foxfire student. So she talks about planting by the signs, which is a practice of using the signs of the zodiac to tell you when to do things, whether it's planting or cutting your hair. But she also shared information about folk songs um, especially when it came to butter churning, and she was a, a weaver and a quilter. And so she kind of sets the stage for what we think of as an Appalachian woman, and then we kind of take the narrative from there by branching out and looking at diverse stories that are coexisting with people like Margaret in Appalachia.
0: Margaret's followed by Beulah Perry. Who again reminds me of mountain women that I've known but realize in reading it like how much I really don't know. Tell me more about Beulah Perry and why why she follows in that second chapter.
7: On a practical level, the book is organized by date of interview, but Beulah makes a great follow chapter to Margaret because as you mentioned, her story shares so many of the same themes, the same activities. But Beulah's Black, so she comes from a different background than Margaret, but yet she still found her way into Raven County, Georgia. So Beulah was actually raised um, the children of sharecroppers in the South Carolina Piedmont. And she has these memories that were inherited from her by her grandfather that he shared with her and her siblings when they were children about his experiences during slavery So she gives us a window into a much different lifestyle and she talks in many ways about racial experiences without necessarily sharing her personal opinions. So this is a chapter where examining the negative space is really important because there are a lot of things that Beulah says, but there's a lot of things that she doesn't say. And she, like I said, just offers a really great alternative perspective and a different background to what life in the mountains was like. And so I really value Beulah for opening up to the Foxfire students in the 70s, which would have been, you know, a quite different experience than it would be today.
1: That was Cami Aarons. She edited the Foxfire book of Appalachian women.
7: Coming
0: up, we'll hear more from Cammy. And here's some recent stories from a collaboration between Foxfire and Lily station, Blue Ridge Public Radio, in western North Carolina.
1: That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia.
7: Support for inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at Concord.edu Can't you hear the whistle
6: blowing? Rise up so early in the morn. Can't you hear the captain shouting?
1: Welcome back Inside Appalachia. I'm Lily Knepp.
0: And I'm Mason Adams. We're talking today about Foxfire, which has been collecting Appalachian oral histories for well over 50 years.
1: And that includes the experiences of Appalachian women. The Foxfire Book of Appalachian Women collects 21 oral histories.
0: Let's hear more from my interview with its editor, Cammie Ahrens. And as the book continues, you go through all these different women. And one of the great delights for me is when I got closer to the end, and there were women who were younger than me, who I don't always associate with oral histories. So there's folks like Sandra Macias-Sklachowski, who emigrated from Ecuador and is much younger than me. I loved reading her story. Can you tell our listeners a little about her?
7: Yeah, for many people, Sandra was the unexpected one, but it was really important to me to make sure that there was Uh, the immigrant experience included in this book because Raven County and many other areas in Appalachia are seeing um, large numbers of Latino immigrants come into the region, specifically because of agricultural opportunities. But, you know, many of them are staying and building businesses. And so it was important to include uh, a Latino voice. And Sandra, as you mentioned, immigrated from Ecuador to Miami as a, as a young child. And she basically raised herself. And it wasn't until she was married with children that she moved to Raven County, but she's become a really important figure in our community and especially um, among the Latino community. And so she serves as kind of a contact for that community here because they are in many ways, a very closed community, both culturally and linguistically. But what was interesting when I sat down with Sandra was that her story to me, echoes so many experiences and themes that come out in Carolyn Stradley's interview. And she was um, interviewed in the 80s. And like Sandra, she raised herself as a child. And so it was really interesting to see those parallels, so many decades apart, and certainly in different regions. But to know that there, there are shared experiences, no matter how diverse we think people are. And as you mentioned, Sandra is young. She's like 35, 36 now, she really has a lot to share. And I think this goes to show that oral histories aren't just sitting down with older people. And while those certainly have value, those experiences have value, we all have stories to share that can make a difference to people around us.
0: So then there's Dakota Brown of the Eastern Band of Eastern Band of Cherokee Indian Wolf Clan, who I found really compelling, just be, not only because of her youth, but she also is so in touch with the history and sense of self um, on the landscape. Can you tell us about Dakota Brown?
7: Yeah, Dakota is incredible. She's employed at the Museum of the Cherokee Indian, and she's working really hard to bring back traditional values in her community and to help um, change the way that people see. And speak about indigenous people. Um, so I'm really excited for the work that she's been doing with her team over at the museum. But Dakota, personally, you know, has really traditional values when it comes to her heritage as a Cherokee woman. And she's really proud of that heritage. And what's interesting about Dakota's conversation is how much she talks about the way that other people. Uh, interpret and understand Native peoples, and I'll never forget, she told me that it's nearly impossible to change the way that people think about you when they think that you don't exist anymore. So people have a tendency to, you know, understand that Native peoples are gone, and they're not. They're very much present in many places throughout our country today, and to understand that we tend to lump Native culture into one group and we see native peoples as one and that's not true a lot of the things that she talks about that are part of the tourist industry in Cherokee North Carolina come from western tribes plains tribes so like powwows and headdresses all of that that doesn't belong to traditional Cherokee culture and so working through those stereotypes to re- represent to a broader public what your culture is, but also to help your own people understand that I think is a massive task. But if anybody is up to it, it's definitely Dakota.
0: So those are just a few of the, the 21 women featured in this book. But after after we hear from 20 of the others, we end with Kay Carver Collins. How did you choose Kay to end the book?
7: I wasn't positive that I was going to end with Kay, but as soon as I started doing her interview, I just knew that it was the right ending point. So during her interview, she just pulled together a lot of themes that had been running through the book and kind of brought everything full circle. And Kay also has a really long standing history with Foxfire. And I felt like that in and of itself was worthy of ending the book on that note. So she as a child remembers her father, Buck Carver, who was a notorious moonshiner, being interviewed by Foxfire students. And then as a teenager herself, she joined the Foxfire program, her and her twin sister bit. And then after she uh, graduated high school, she started working for Foxfire as an adult and spent a lot of time working with Foxfire, editing Foxfire books, supporting local students. And then in recent years, she's served both as a community board member and a board member, and now is on an advisory committee for the museum. So Kay has, you know, one of the most in-depth, long-standing histories with Foxfire, of the people that I know involved with the organization, and she just kind of pulls it all together, and I think the way she ends her interview is a really great way to end the book as well.
0: So, there are 21 women featured in this book, but really there's 22 because you, as the curator, are in each of these pages, whether we see you or not. So, what was your experience like? What wisdom have you taken away from your work with this book, the Foxfire Book of Appalachian Women?
7: You know, there's so much to take away from it, but I think at its core, I took away a sense of resiliency and understanding you know, a long-term view of what's most important to us in our lives and how we can use that to shape our daily experiences with others. You know, there's so many hardships that people go through that most people don't even know about until you take the time to sit down and ask somebody. And I think that opening up of yourself as a researcher or as an interviewer to other people's stories, to other experiences, people's experiences and leaving your own own concerns behind, I think that can shape you if you allow it. And I think that can help you grow if you're open to it. And I would say that's probably the biggest lesson I've taken away is to, to sit and to listen, to be open and to let other people's experiences help shape how I understand myself and my place and, how I can react and respond to others better to make them feel important and valued in difficult times.
0: Your experience and description of that resonate with me as the show host of Inside Appalachia. I mean, this is my favorite part of the job, too, is listening to folks like yourself. So this has truly been a pleasure. Cami Aarons, thank you so much for speaking with us.
7: Thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you for the work that you do in and around Appalachia to help bring stories to new people. That was Cami
1: Aarons. She's the editor of the Foxfire Book of Appalachian Women.
7: Since that
0: interview, Aarons left her job as Foxfire's curator for another job. But some of the projects she helped start are continuing on, including one with you, Lily.
5: Yeah,
1: Cammie and I have been working together since 2020 when Blue Ridge Public Radio partnered with Foxfire to record oral histories and air them on the radio.
0: Let's listen to
1: some. Okay, uh, we'll start with Dakota Brown. She's the Education Director of the Museum of the Cherokee People in the Koala Boundary, the sovereign nation of the Eastern Band of Cherokee. Cammie recorded an interview with her in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, and she talks about how covid Impacted her
8: life on the boundary. We had actually decided to shut down right before, like a few days before they had decided to close the boundary. My name is Dakota Brown. I am the education director at the Museum of the Cherokee. The museum that's here now started in 1976. We have um, one main exhibit area. The main exhibit begins with our stories and then goes into some archeology span and then into some history as well. But the museum is kind of a brief overview of Cherokee history. Here in Cherokee, I feel like they responded fairly quickly. I think everybody was kind of um, on board to do something like pretty aggressive. And so um, what they decided to do was to shut down everything, shut down our casino, shut down um, the tribal offices and close the borders because Cherokee has tons of tourists come here every day. With, and we were just getting into the tourist season when when all this kind of happened. And so they decided to shut down the borders and only let residents and enrolled members onto the boundary. But luckily, I'm an enrolled member, so I was able to like get on and off the boundary fairly easily. But my mom, she lives in Snowbird, and Snowbird's an hour away from Cherokee. She's not an enrolled member, so she could get it to her house in Snowbird but she couldn't get here to Cherokee. So anytime we had to reach her, it was kind of difficult because um, they had also closed Graham County's borders. So there was a lot of like meeting that had to be done if we needed to see our mom. I don't think at any point in time uh, my family was like angry about that. We were just glad that they were doing that. We were very happy that they had closed closed Grand County and we were very happy that they closed the boundary and so I don't think at any point in time we were like oh this is awful I hate this I wish they would open back up I think we were just like oh well, we got to do what we got to do kind of thing our language is endangered we have very few fluent speakers and there's plenty of reasons for that one of the main reasons is um, BIA education boarding school education the way that they systematically disconnected us from our language. There is really small population of, of fluent speakers, and there's a huge population um, of EBCI systems that don't speak Cherokee and are maybe desperately trying. Um, so, our language is held right now with our with our elders, with you know our older population. Um, so if something were to happen to them, our language would die. And that's scary. It's, it's really, really scary. And there's like words like extinction that comes to mind that I don't think that most other Americans have to think about.
0: That was Dakota Brown in an interview that was part of the partnership between Foxfire and Blue Ridge Public Radio. Another was Kay Carver-Collins.
1: That's right. Kay Carver-Collins has deep ties to Foxfire. When she was young, her father was interviewed for the magazine. Then she worked on the magazine herself as a teenager, interviewing people in her community. She went on to work at Foxfire as a staff member And we thought it was important to show how the historic Foxfire interviews are still part of the current fabric of Southern Appalachia.
0: Here's Kay Carver-Collins in 2021, sharing memories of her mother. The interview was done
2: by Cammie Ahrens. I'm Kay Carver-Collins. I tell people I was born here, and if I'm real lucky, I'll get to die here. I am the youngest of, there's ten girls and one boy. I'm the youngest. My mom was unusual in a lot of ways. She, uh... Her mother died when she was 10 years old. She was the oldest, and she quit school. She was in the fourth grade and stayed home to take care of her two little brothers and her baby sister. She told us that she had to stand on a chair to reach the stove to cook for them. So she's been a hard worker her entire life. Uh, later on, she actually went up to, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the little town that's got the Papermills Canton and worked in the paper mills up there. She didn't marry till she was about 24 years old, which was very unusual for women back then. Yes, she always worked outside the home, always. She cooked, she was a maid. She did whatever she had to do to help keep the family together. Just just a top-notch lady. She may have had a fourth grade education, but education's not everything.
7: How do you connect with the landscape here? What's, what, how do you feel about the mountains?
2: Oh, Lord, there's no place like them. I can be having an absolutely horrible day and just go sit down and look at the mountains and, and peace comes over me. Yeah. Uh, my favorite thing when I leave here, I don't like to leave here, but my favorite thing is when I come back and I top that hill in Hollywood and you see those mountains out in front of you. My whole body just relaxes.
0: That was Kay Carver College.
1: We've been hearing from women about their experiences in Appalachia, but what we're about to hear are three young men talking about their memories of their mothers and grandmothers in the region. They were recorded at Mini Mountain Heritage Day at Western Carolina University in July.
9: I used to also stay in there at my great-grandma's before she passed away. I was always attached to her. to the point that we would almost be considered two piece in a pod. I used to call her <laughs> "bag of wrinkles." <laughs> Obviously, it's uh, in hindsight, it's kind of a mean name, but I, I didn't think much about it at the time. I would always watch like Judge Judy with her, mm-hmm. and she would make uh, she would have like tea and like vegetable soup and all that stuff made. She was so nice. God, I miss her. She died whenever I was like six seven mm-hmm. but from what I remember she was incredibly sweet it's like my grandpa always uh, used to make her off as like this really strict person But no from as long as I knew her you know, she would always can her own soups so usually whenever I went to her house there's always like a pot of soup on the stove it's like she would always keep a stock of tea biscuits for me <laughs> because I used to love them things mm-hmm. growing up it's like, we would always sit and chat for hours. She would tell me all these uh, stories about whenever she was younger. I, I really miss her. Everyone's like, has their own definition of Southern hospitality in their own way. And like, they express it in their own way. Do you have any
1: women in your family that you were really close
9: to? Yeah, my mom. Yeah. I'm still close to her now. She's not dead. What's her name? Her name's Paula. But she's like, the strongest person I've ever met. Like. Not too long ago, when I was like, this was my eighth grade year, she went through a fight with cancer, and like, with the whole back to Southern hospitality, like, people would come over and like, check on her yeah. kids, because she would be away at Chapel Hill mm-hmm. in the hospital getting her chemo. She's in remission now, mm-hmm. luckily.
5: I've always been an outdoors kid, so I just love going on hikes, I like to fish, so this, this is my place, these are my people, so yeah. I grew up in a house of four until I was, uh, Nine years old, my mother passed away, and uh, for a while it was just me, my dad, and my brother. So I grew up around, you know, obviously I knew my mother, but it was just a house full of men for a while. So we were a little wild sometimes, but came from a very loving home, and uh, I feel I was raised with good morals. Yeah. So she was a strong Christian, and she, you know, I've was only with her for nine years but i picked up a lot of good morals from her and she you know she taught me how to respect people as well as nature and uh... she's just she was an amazing woman and you know, it sucks that i didn't get to spend as much time with her as i wanted to but she was an amazing woman and she she's somebody i looked up to her name was katherine
0: that was Alex Brown, Omar Flowers, and John Dickerson.
1: They were interviewed by BPR volunteers, and as we add to the Fox Viral Oral History Collection, we're also training volunteers to conduct oral histories themselves. This next interview excerpt with storyteller Elizabeth Ellis was also recorded by volunteers.
0: Ellis talks about her perception of what it means to be an Appalachian woman.
1: This was recorded in August at the John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina.
3: My name is Elizabeth Ellis. I'm from Milligan College, Tennessee in Boonville, Kentucky. I currently live in Dallas, Texas because somebody has to. I'm 80 years old. Storytelling isn't something I do for a living. It's who I am. We swim every day in an ocean of story, and I'm always shocked when other people don't see them or think of them as story. I've been making my living as a storyteller since 1979. Before that, I worked for 10 years at Dallas Public Library, and those 10 years, I spent a lot of my time telling stories at the library. For me, storytelling is a calling, not a job. I think the most important gift we were given as people is imagination. That imagination is vital to everything that happens. But we're living in a world that does not encourage people to use their imagination. In fact, most of the things that people experience actually discourage it. When you watch TV, when you go to the movies, when you play video games, somebody else has made all the pictures. So, you don't have to bother doing that. It's kind of passive entertainment. When I tell you a story, you have to come up with your part because you're the co-creator of the story. You have to visualize, imagine, everything that's happening in it. All ethical behavior is based on the imagination. All ethical behavior is based on the ability to imagine the effect of my behavior on your life. All interaction with the divine relies on the imagination. How can you interface with a God you can't see or taste or touch or smell without an active imagination? It can't be done. So many important things. In fact, most of the important things about being human come from the imagination. As simple as being able to imagine what, will, what effect it will have if you don't do your civic duty in a time when people try to get out of jury duty and they won't bother to put their shoes on to go and vote. If you can imagine what happens if everybody does that, maybe you look at it differently. Maybe you take your responsibilities more seriously. I think helping people be more imaginative is the lifeblood of our culture. Can't really be successful as human beings without an active imagination. Every one of us are where we are doing what we do, accomplishing what we accomplish because we had enough imagination to visualize ourselves getting there and sticking to that picture through all of the obstacles that were set before us on the way. Storytelling's been a great way to make a life. It may not be the best way to make a living, but it's the best way to make a life for yourself. What does it mean to you to be from Appalachia? It means having a firm foundation and a solid grip on what reality looks like. In your, what was your childhood like in the mountains? my childhood in the mountains, let's say my Kentucky childhood because that was the most mountainous. I was my grandfather's little sidekick. It was my job to go with him everywhere that was dangerous. So I was his fishing buddy and his blackberry picking buddy and anything else he was supposed to do because my job was to run home and tell them if something happened to grandpa and he needed help. It was church four times on Sunday because he was a circuit-writing preacher. And so we went with him to preach in four different communities. Every morning on Sunday morning, every Sunday morning we would get up and there would be two big picnic baskets on the kitchen table. One of them would be filled with food and the other would be filled with very stiffly starched white dress shirts. And he would preach himself through one white shirt At the first church and then we'd go to the second church and he'd preach himself through the second white shirt. We'd come on down to Lower Buffalo then finally back to Boonville when all the food in the picnic basket had been eaten and all the shirts were drooping wet with sweat it was time to go home. Is there a childhood story that comes to mind about yourself and your life growing up in the mountains? As soon as my mother realized that my father was not coming home from World War II, she packed us up bag and baggage to move us from her parents' house where we would always have been welcome to Milligan College, Tennessee to grow up in the house he'd been born in because she wanted us to grow up knowing as much about him as we possibly could. My mother gave up a great deal of comfort and security because she loved my father. And when she died in her 90s she was still as much in love with him as she was the day that she had learned that he was dead. That sense of connection that doesn't break with death. I think a lot of people in Appalachia have a much more current relationship with the dead than people in other places do.
0: You've been involved as a woman in the world for so long and has that
3: changed, and how do you feel about it and see it today? Fifty years ago when I moved to Dallas, I put $500 in the credit union and asked to borrow 200 to begin establishing credit and was refused because I couldn't produce a husband or a father who would co-sign the note, even though I had more money in their account than what I was asking for. Women have made a good bit of progress, and it's really true that federal law has made it harder to discriminate against women. But it still happens all the time. Anytime you make some progress forward, there's always gonna be a backlash. And we're living in a time right now where there's backlash against any kind of progress that people are trying to make. Whether or not you are a woman or if you're a person of color or if you are a person who's, let's say, different in any kind of way. Young women today need to be very, very careful not taking for granted any of the progress that was made on their behalf in the past. A lot of it could be lost easily and stay lost for a long time. On the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned, I called my grandson whom I raised. And I said, your little boy's daughters will ask us what we did. Did you stand up for us? Did you try to help us? Did you try to make sure that our rights weren't taken away from us? So as a family, we've been trying to do everything we can to make sure that people's rights are restored, that we are not going backward. And if we are going backward in any area, it's only temporary. Because in the long run, love always conquers. Love always wins out. can love your enemies until you drive them crazy.
0: That was Elizabeth Ellis. She was interviewed by volunteers at the John C. Campbell Folk School in Western North Carolina.
1: Foxfire has a long history of recording Appalachian folk songs and traditions like shape note singing. And we're continuing in that tradition, too. This next recording is from a class called African American and Appalachian Musical Connections, which was taught by scholar and gospel choir director Dr. Kathy Bullock. When we visited, the class was studying the song Nat Turner. It's about a rebellion against slavery in Virginia in 1831.
0: Let's end today by listening to that
1: segment. Dr. Kathy Bullock is a former professor in the music department at Berea College in Kentucky.
4: We are in our class on African-American and Appalachian musical connections. So we've been spending the week looking and listening and singing and performing music and the stories of black musicians who grew up or performed in Appalachia, looking at all kinds of wonderful connections between African-Americans, Scots irish Native American, just all the folks that were here and so many of the stories that have been left
1: out. Bullock explains that one song is called Nat Turner and chronicles the rebellion against slavery that was led by Nat Turner in Virginia in 1831.
4: Black folks started of him as a hero. He died as a result of that. But they wanted to tell his story. Many times you couldn't do it out loud, it was dangerous. But we found the words in a project I'm doing called S- Songs of Slavery and Emancipation. And this is one of 30 songs that has been now performed and released to the world. Wow. And so it's, it's really the first time people are really hearing it again since the 1800s. And it's called Nat Turner. Oh, you can't keep the word
0: was Kathy Bullock's class at John C. Campbell Folk School as recorded by Blue Ridge Public Radio. Thanks for coming on Inside Appalachia and talking with us about BPR's work with Foxfire, Lily.
1: Thanks for having me, Mason. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia.
0: We'll end today by hearing Kami Aarons again. I asked her to read the afterward to the Foxfire book of Appalachian women.
7: Despite all the differences among the women in this book, And despite the breadth of time between them, they share a special relationship with the land on which they live. Their lives were made from the immediate material of the landscape. Their houses, their food, even the very stories that they told that helped bring their communities together, were shaped by resources from the mountains. All of the Foxfire women born in Appalachia or elsewhere express such a powerful connection with the place that it forms the foundation of their shared identity. Though the Foxfire women never say it outright, they speak of the mountains in much the same way as they speak of their mothers, their aunts, their mentors, and even of themselves. The surface of the landscape changes, but the mountains stay the same, similar to how the women grow, but remain true to themselves. The mountains provide strength, tranquility, and comfort in ways that are similar to how our mothers, relatives, and friends support us in times of crisis and joy. To be Appalachian, you don't have to trace your ancestry back hundreds or even thousands of years in the region. Being Appalachian doesn't equate to being white, poor, or stubborn. Such stereotypes perpetuated to this day in various forms of contemporary culture do a grave disservice to the multitude of voices and experiences that make up the stories of these mountains and the people who live in them. I believe that to discover the identity of Appalachia, we have to look inside ourselves to our own core.
0: That was Cami Aarons. She's the editor of the Foxfire Book of Appalachian Women. Other music this week was provided by Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn, Sean Watkins, Molly Tuttle, and Dr. Kathy Bullock in her class at the John C. Campbell Folk School.
1: Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. And our executive producer is Eric Douglas.
0: Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia.
1: You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org visit wvpublic.org/insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories
0: or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app.
1: Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
7: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures classes available at concord.edu slash apply.